Welcome to episode 40 of Developer Melange, the podcast about developing software in the 21st century directly from Vienna, Austria. Developer Melange brings you regular discussions about everything software development. You can find us online on developermelange.com and you can follow us on Twitter via at devmelange. That's dev, M-E-L-A-N-G-E. We are very keen on learning what you think about this show or the podcast itself. So please reach out for us on Twitter or leave your comments on our website. We appreciate all of your feedback. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, my name is David Leitner. I'm co-founder of Square Solutions, a Viennese software company, and describe myself as an enthusiastic software professional who is working on various projects using a bunch of different stacks and environments. I'm Peter Kovler, the Code Corp. Obviously, I'm fanatic about clean code. My name is Christian Haas. I'm a developer who embraces extreme programming. And in this episode, we are joined by Eric Normand. Hello, Eric. Hello. Eric Normand has been developing functionally since the year 2000. On his web page, Eric makes functional programming accessible with a podcast on his own, as well as essays. Providing training and consulting as well, he's taking complex academic ideas and makes them useful for the software industry. And with his newest book, Grokking Simplicity, he provides a friendly, practical guide towards a mindset of functional programming. Great to have you on the show. Oh, it's so great to be here. In your book, you have put in a showcase for a developer trying to pitch functional programming to their manager. And through that, the manager rejects this approach because they then looked up the, the technical definition of functional programming on the internet. To which degree is this a stylized story? And what was your most extreme case of rejection to bring this story up? Yeah, well, it's definitely a, a stylized story. Uh, you know, it's like a one-page comic strip or something. So it is it is meant to be sort of representative of something that happens all the time but i think it does happen all the time i think that when people uh, are interested in functional programming they look up on wikipedia what it is because that's where you go when you're interested in something and the definition does not sell the idea it doesn't talk about how um, how great it is and and the the benefits of it. It just talks about what it can't what you can't do when you're doing functional programming. You can't do side effects and you know you you can't uh, have any uh, mutable variables or mutable data structures. And I think that's unfortunate because uh, there's a lot of functional programmers out there who do have side effects in their software. I mean, it would. <laughs> It would be weird to have software that didn't have side effects, like some reason to run the program. Mm. And uh, they do use mutable state. And so my goal with the book was to kind of address this. Now, I do have a story. When I was, oh, this must have been 10 years ago, maybe, maybe 12 years ago, I was working at a job, and I was into closure, and everyone knew it. Uh, all, the, all the programmers knew it. And um, I was talking about Lisp and uh, what I liked about it. And my manager, he was also a programmer. So to be fair, you know, he knew what he was, he had experience. He said, well, I could never use a programming language that doesn't have loops. 
Mm. And I thought to myself, that does not describe the Lisp I know. You know, I use loops all the time. And I was also into common Lisp, so I went back to my desk and I looked up, we were using Java on the, at the job. So I looked up how many loops are there in Java. There's the for loop, there's the while loop, and there's the do while loop. Mm. So that's three. And then I counted in common Lisp how many loops there are. And there were something like seven or eight different kinds <laughs> of loops. And so I thought, what is going on and... What I, I asked him, and I realized that he had learned Lisp in college in a class where they were learning functional programming, and the teacher had not taught the loops so that they mm. would have to use recursion. And so he had the idea that uh, there, was no, there were no loops in the language, and so it was totally impractical. And it's that kind of academic... Uh, take on programming and, and functional programming specifically that I think has done a lot of disservice to the industry. You know, mm. Common Lisp is an incredibly practical language. Um, now, it's, it's dated. You know, it, it gets older every year. Uh, but it has so many features in it that uh, a functional programmer like let's say a Haskell programmer would say, I would never use that. It's too mutable. It's too, you know, too much side effects. And it's an incredibly practical system and was used in the industry for a long time. So I, I always remembered that story and wanted to bring something like that into the book. You know, that this isn't, this isn't, uh, you know, your professor's attempt at, teaching functional programming to you so that you would you know be forced through immersion in in a very strict language to learn it i wanted people to learn it in the language that they already understood right right which is i guess also why you, you took javascript as the That's reference right. language in, in the book yeah i see it's like when It, it seems like for if you want to do functional programming, you have to do you have to use a functional programming language, and then right. you're suddenly stripped away from all your toys. Like, well, where That's are my right. loops? Or not knowing about this, or uh, want to try something, and then the compiler screams at you for doing weird stuff. That's right. That's right. So it, it's uh, it's immersion. It's like you mm. know you want to you want to learn French. You go to France, and you know you you speak badly for a long time, and you don't you don't get the things you need and you, you eventually <laughs> learn how to say the stuff correctly and uh, then you, you speak French. If you try to learn at home uh, from, from a book, if you, if you get hungry, you can always just speak English. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you're hungry in France, you have to learn to speak. And it's just a lot more motivation and your brain kicks in and starts learning it. Um, I think that I have to be clear on something that I, it's not a functional programming in JavaScript book. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I can say that enough times. I'm not recommending you use functional programming um, or you use JavaScript to learn functional programming. Yeah. Um, I actually think it's not that great of a language for it. It's okay. It's mediocre for doing functional programming. Yeah. 
Um, and it's kind of bad at learning it for all those reasons I said, because you're not immersed. You can always just yeah. use a for loop uh, if you get stuck sure. somewhere. So it's more but, about the mindset. Your, your goal is about the mindset. And yeah, it's, it's good. It's just a hacking. Yeah, it's good for teaching job, uh, functional programming because it doesn't have all the features you'd expect. And so we have to build them in the book, mm. right? We have to build immutability. We have to build first-class functions. You know, like plus isn't a first-class function in JavaScript. So we have to show how to do it. So, yeah, I think I felt like it was a pretty good language for teaching it because otherwise you get you get tied up on like functional programming it's all about these certain set of features that the language gives you mm -hmm. right so are you like implementing a lisp in javascript then no no i'm just making fun of you uh sorry <laughs> so what what would you recommend as a learning language for functional programming then oh that's a good question um so it depends on what side of the type debate you fall mm -hmm. like if you like static types Uh, something like Haskell, although that might be a big first jump. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Elm, which I think mm -hmm. is really good for for learning the types. It has a simpler type system, but still, you know, robust, and um, it's it still has the immutability and everything. And so it's a it's a good step into uh, functional programming on the type side. On the untyped side, I think Clojure is a really good uh, language to learn for that. Uh, it has, it's untyped, uh, but it has immutable data structures by default and runs on the JVM and compiles to JavaScript. So you can, you can choose the platform you want to run it on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I tried my luck with Haskell. I, I'm still curious about it, though my time doesn't permit it, or at least I'm not taking the time for for that. And for that, I, I found the Haskell book. For me, it was an, a curious idea because it was simply starting from zero about uh -huh. well, both the language and function programming, because the author used their their partner for proofreading the book, and that partner did not have any idea about programming. Wow! So th this was a, a curious idea about that, though it's well specific to Haskell. Whereas you, uh, Eric, your book is uh, more about the mindset for function programming and then taking in, in whichever language you are, then to think more in that manner. Mm -hmm. That's right. But and maybe that, it's a uh, little bit of a provocation. It always happens between us, Peter, right? Yeah, please go ahead. <laughs> maybe it's a little bit of a provoking question, but I mean, why, why should I take the effort to develop something with Haskell? If I, for example, could say, hey, I could use Java, I could use C-sharp in .NET, or I could use JavaScript, which all come with a basic set to also execute functional programming there. And I still have the fallback to say, hey, for some use cases, maybe I want to go the object-oriented way because it fits the problem space better. So what is really the primer, um, especially for languages like not Clojure, which would also run on the JVM, but languages which have a very specific own ecosystem? And they're hard to integrate and into other kind of yeah. Yeah. So I mean you're you're asking me to sell Haskell and <laughs> I don't like I don't know if I can. Um I don't think I'm the right person for that, but I'll I'll give it a shot. Um Haskell I have worked in Haskell and Haskell um gives you 
really great modeling tools for for modeling your domain and it's uh, the type system is because it's sound um uh, as opposed to say java's type system which has you know a lot you know you could cast at any time that kind of thing um and it does a lot of inference it's like having a logician on your shoulder who can catch errors like oh you didn't think of this you didn't think of that and that that actually when you when you do get over the hump and you understand the type system um that haskell provides you it actually starts feeling good that like oh thanks for catching that error before you're on the other side of the hump when you're still learning it's much more like oh but why oh man i got to start over or try something else i why are you why why do you why do you hate me <laughs> sometimes it feels like the compiler is just your enemy but when you get over the hump and it's your friend um it does have a smaller ecosystem uh, i have to say than like java for instance um but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot there's enough like uh, you know it, i worked at a company and it was all haskell and we we did just fine um with with the libraries that were available there are companies based on it so there's you know yeah. the practical stuff has been worked out well there are companies based on javascript right so <laughs> well that's a big community they can <laughs> they can brute force any problems they yeah. have so. no um now, but let's uh, let's get book, uh, back to your book. It's named Crocking Simplicity, right? And so, and then it's a functional programming book. It's like an introduction functional programming, right? Right. So, how is simplicity? Like, is it the simplicity you make the concepts from SIGBee and and like so everybody can understand them, or where is simplicity coming in? Uh, that is a really good question. The title actually comes from an earlier draft of the book. So the an early one draft. All right, and I also have to explain it's I did not choose the title. The title. <laughs> <So> the <publisher laughs> yes, the publisher chose the title mm -hmm. after reading this earlier draft, and um, the earlier draft was. It wasn't very it wasn't a very good book to read. It wasn't very interesting. But the idea was to uh, motivate functional programming by talking about complexity and kind of talking about different ways that complexity enters into mm -hmm. your software. Mm -hmm. And one of those ways was the different kinds of the different orderings that you get when you're running multiple threads. Mm -hmm that there's this explosion, this factorial explosion of interleavings between the different threads. And so that's a source of complexity. And so we wanna, we wanna tame that, we wanna uh, reduce that complexity. And the other source of complexity was, I guess you, you call it corner cases, <laughs> mm -hmm. conditionals. Like every time you add a conditional, you have at least two branches. Mm -hmm. And so now you have this possibility of this, you know, if you nest them, you have this exponential growth doubling every time you add of every time you nest deeper of of possible states you're in. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea was this was in the early draft 
the idea was to address those two with functional programming. And it turns out that I do address the first one because I do talk about timelines and different threads and, and ways that functional programming has to deal with uh, timing issues, ordering issues between different threads. Um, uh, but I don't deal with the other one, which I was going to approach it from a data modeling perspective. Like the problem, the reason you have too many conditionals is you have not adequately modeled the problem. And uh, you're, you're having these corner cases because you used, for you know, just as an example, you used two Booleans to model a situation that only has three cases. Mm -hmm. So now you have oh, this I fourth see. case that what you know what if you get it what if it's in your data now you have to make a conditional like to deal with that and this should never happen so they the typical command this should never happen i see but let's exceptions rule that never should have been thrown right yeah yeah should never reach that code no but do you think do you think that functional programming like on a personal uh personal question do you think that functional programming paradigms or parts of it lead to more uh simple code on I think with the, with that definition of complexity, that the tools that functional programming gives you can address them. Not saying like all functional code is simple, uh, but those two um, sources, I feel like are not well served by um, other paradigms. So the whole idea of concurrency uh, and how do you deal with it, I think that when, like, for instance, object-oriented programmers talk about it, they always start borrowing ideas from functional programming, and they they they'll even they'll say that they're like, oh yeah, we'll use immutability like the functional folks do. Then with the data modeling, I I feel like uh, the way that object-oriented modeling and design is is taught, you get into this two boolean problem all the time, and. I, w I wanted to approach it from a more functional side, which is let's let's use product types and some types and build up the the model more, you know, systematically to avoid corner cases and and use some algebraic properties to define, you know, I actually didn't didn't get into that in the book, but um, I had a plan for where to go with that. Mm -hmm. But Eric, sorry for interrupting you, but can you go a little bit into detail about the two problem problem? The two Boolean problems? Yeah, sure. It's not, it's not familiar to maybe the whole audience of our podcast. Uh, I worked at a company and we had uh, a system where you, you could sign a document. So it would record when you open the web page to view the document and then you click sign and it records that you signed it, right? And it would record, you know, you sign, in a Boolean, yes, viewed the document, Boolean, yes, signed it. What happens if you sign it, if you have a true in the signed, but you have a false in the, in the view? That shouldn't be possible, um, but we could represent it. And so the problem is you are trying to model this flow with, that actually has three states, which is not viewed, viewed, and signed. But you have a you have two booleans which can be in four different states, and so you have this corner case of 
of not viewed but signed. And, you know, if, it, if it's a legal document, you might get into trouble. Like, wait, they signed it without viewing it? Like, why, why did they do that? And you've got that in your database that they never viewed it. And, you know, it's just technically impossible. They couldn't get to, to the button without viewing it. But you can represent it in your code. And so you have to have an if statement. And, you know, you're just starting to talk about this complexity we we're talking about with this corner case. So the idea is functional programming has tools for modeling that state and knowing when your model has a tight fit on the actual, you know, knowing whether your code has a tight fit on the, the situation you're trying to model. Yeah, I think it makes totally sense as example, and it's definitely one of the things um, where, yeah, which is actually, I think, one of the, the main advantages we are we are often discussing also within teams um, when we discuss exactly about this topic and these decisions. Um, I think I interrupted you, Peter, um, but otherwise I would I would like to understand a little bit more because what we see quite as a trend going on these days is the whole idea of um, reactive programming, which is kind of asynchronous functional programming, I would kind of translate it. Um, do you think that this is something um, which could change the whole game in a way um, that people will move more to these functional concepts? Because there we have that what you mentioned before, concurrency. We guess need a lot of um, immutability out of the box. So if our system's coming more into this reactive aspect, then maybe this is a, a good driver to to yeah to enable functional programming again as a first class or as a first choice um, as a programming language, right? For, for engineers. In the course of writing the book. I decide, and all these drafts, <laughs> some of that you know had all these consequences that I didn't anticipate, like having the title chosen based on one of them. Um, I started to look at functional programming as a rich body of practice, where there were just all these good ideas that are applicable in software in general, regardless of the language you use. And so then the book is just, well, let's just pick the common ones, the most important ones that you can build on. And I put those into the book. And one of those things is reactive programming. So I would hate for someone to listen to, to, to this podcast and think reactive programming is the next big thing. I have to change all my code to reactive programming uh, because it's better. Um, it's actually very good for a specific situation of a specific job. Normally in code, you sequence steps, right? This happens, then this happens, then that happens. And sometimes what happens is you have a lot of things have to happen. Like when, when event A happens, when something happens in the code, like let's say a variable changes, I need to run 10 things, boom, 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 right? And then there's 10 places that can change the code, right? There's, or sorry, not change the code, change that variable. There's 10 things that might change that variable and 10 things that have to happen every time it changes. So now you have to keep these in sync and you notice there's actually, it's an N by M problem. Every time you add a thing, that has to run, you have to go add it in all the 10 places. And every time you add a new way to change it, you have to 
make sure it runs all those 10 things. Mm-hmm. So this, this, is a, this is, you know, the kind of complexity that I'm talking about, where it's, it's an N by M thing, and it explodes the amount of work you have to do, mm-hmm. the number of things you can get wrong. What reactive programming does is it reverses it. Instead of saying do A then B, you say whenever A happens, do B. Right? And so now if you you make a, a construct that can detect, oh, this variable has changed, right? Maybe wrap it up in an object and the setter on it now will have some callbacks or something that it can go, you know, it's like the observer pattern, right? And so you you uh, decouple the sources of change from the things that have to happen when it changes. Now, the problem with it is you can't just look at the code and see, oh, these 10 steps are going to happen because those are all registered in other places. Um, You can't see that statically in the code. And so there's this trade-off of the flexibility of adding these things easily from other places in the code versus the the readability, the legibility of knowing yeah. what's going to happen. Fully, fully agree. Yeah. You, you know, I, I'm just asking this direction because I always wonder, you know, I mean, I think functional programming made its step into the wide maturity of programmers. If you think of it like the Stream API in Java, right? But that's mm-hmm. it's mainly used within still an object-oriented paradigm you build your classes and within the methods of those classes you start to use functional concepts i would say right so the the overall software design is still object oriented and you start to introduce a little bit of functional programming in in the methods for example right, right. and um we see the same thing um a little bit um in a way that people say no we don't want to do object oriented programming at all we, we go full stack functional programming right um, and i see it easier that we can mix object oriented program functional program but i see it for example very hard to mix reactive software design with existing object oriented software design um, on a way how we did it with functional programming so my, my general question i always ask and that's what i also tried to ask with the, with the first question do you think that it makes sense to mix those concepts um so 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 heavily right so have languages which support i don't know java with ix java you can do reactive programming with the stream api you can do kind of functional programming you have an object-oriented program and programming language at your hand do you think it's good if we if we really mix and match those in one kind of software design code base or would you rather go in one direction, say, okay, maybe we split up the programs and say, okay, for this, pro- for this problem domain, we go with object-oriented, and here we go with functional, but we don't start to mix this all together so that you never know, is it now in synchronous state, is it in asynchronous state, do we have a mutant list here, do we have um, um, information hiding of the object-oriented side, you know what I mean. So it's, it's getting very yeah. fuzzy to really make understandable what is the code is about and what are kind of the, the unspoken rules um, people should understand if they work with Wow, that's a really good question. Um, so <laughs> I was hoping that you can answer it for me. Yeah, yeah well, my answer <laughs> is I don't think the mixing is a problem, uh, you know, per se, as you know, by itself. But I think it does take a, a very clever language designer to make it work well. Um, you know, you talked about 
not knowing like, well, what's mutable and what's not mutable, what's safe concurrently and, and that kind of thing. Um, that is a hard design choice that, you know, languages like Java took on by allowing, you know, mutable variables everywhere. And now it takes a book to learn how to do concurrency. Uh, whereas a lot of languages on the functional side have taken the opposite approach. It's immutable by default. If you want a mutable thing, you have to jump through a couple hoops. And so you, it's very clear that everything is safe except for those hoops, the parts where you jump through the hoops. That's the unsafe part. So I think that, that the mixing isn't the problem. It's the the you know the other design choices that uh, that cause the the issue, and I I actually think that object oriented programming has a lot of great stuff in it, um, and I would you know as a functional programmer I would probably use a lot of uh, object oriented design to like build nice interfaces around say a uh, what is it called an executor service right so that i could not worry you know m this code is worrying about the threads and the concurrency and my code doesn't have to do it because it's got this nice interface around it um if i had to if i had to uh, critique object-oriented design for anything it's thinking it's it's modeling too big right it's modeling the high level concepts in your domain, like let's say user or um, you know document, as a uh, using low level constructs, right? So you have all these methods on user, and what are they doing in there? They're doing for loops, and they're doing you know banging on mutable variables, and uh, object-oriented design is really good for building small abstractions, small things that need to maintain a tiny bit of state and have a consistent API around them. Um, and I don't see enough of that. I see a little bit, but of course it's in the functional parts, like in the Java, the new the Java Streams API. They are the the lambda stuff. It's not actually the streams. They have all these uh, what they call the functional interfaces, mm -hmm. and those are really well designed. You notice how how general they are, and I think that's where the object oriented stuff really shines is is being able to define these general interfaces like function from type A to type B you can define these things and the type system can take care of it and you can uh, you can rely on that interface throughout your code there it's not as good at, at like java doesn't provide as much help with like modeling a person or the data that has to do with a person or at least you have you have to create everything yourself right so I, yeah. I'm like proposing or like when I'm doing workshop, I always want people to model smaller things. So let's yeah. have a name class. Let's have a, a birth date. Uh, right. Maybe the birth date contains a general time, which is again 
a wrapper around uh, existing type. So, but I agree. But usually it's not done. Usually it's just a big entity, and right. we could have it this small, fine grained. But maybe it's too like maybe it's too much work compared to just having a union type. Maybe that's the reason, right? Because I need to create classes and I need to compose classes. But when you do like a union type or some some mixture of types, it's just one line, so it's it's very easy to create, right? Yeah, that's true. That's the saying that string is the most used domain model in object-oriented yeah. programming languages. String, string, probably. It's kind of string. String from a string, like first name, last name, or something like that. That's and yet, true. Java projects have so many classes. Like, what are what are these all doing? Well, that's the abstract executor services. <laughs> yeah, the abstract. <laughs> it's the abstract executor services implementations. Right. Yeah, you have the person and the person manager. Like, what is the manager doing? What is? Why did this person object need to be managed? Then you have, then you have the person helper, the static, static <laughs> class. That's all the need to create the stuff which um, not going to object anymore. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's stop bashing that. Um, yeah, exactly. yeah, thank you, Peter. The, uh, one, um, in, in the book, Eric, uh, you're not just only about the, the mindset on, on let's say, a low level. It's even then in the later chapters, it's also about the architecture. Mm -hmm. And here the, um, I, I saw an, a, a graphic and came upon it that, well, opened or made me realize what I've thought was wrong with the code bases I was working so far. So to give more context, for about a year now, I'm working in the, I would say, typical industry. Previously, I was in specialized cases where all those fancy, regular architectures that you now see and, and setups don't happen so often. So I'm pretty much new and I'm finally doing all the stuff that we're discussing on this podcast then and again. And coming back to this onion architecture, where you have this uh, comparison between, okay, you have somewhere this the controller uh, terminating HTTP request, then you have some service layer, and then it's downward to the uh, repository database layer. And the, the idea now with this functional mindset is to draw the, the line with the main abstraction and the actual side effects a little mm -hmm. bit different. It's a little uh, slanted. Um, so, uh, which... Right would then allow the controller to have the access to the persistence layer and only call the services to modify the data that is being requested and then the controller again stores it or at least accesses the repository again. And for me this was sort of eye-opening because the code bases, now to close this circle I came across, I was always wondering, okay, why does the controller first ask the service, please give me that entity by that ID and then takes this entity and then gives it back to the service and says, okay, do something with that entity, which mm. was confusing <laughs> to me. And why? What's the, why did no, I take it and give it right back? <laughs> right. So this is but, but Christian, I think that's a very interesting point you're touching here. And, and for me, I always say this to, to colleagues when I'm discussing about this. For me, this is the worst decision which was ever made in the field of software engineering to move all these patterns and paradigms and, and mindset, which was actually initially made for fat client applications, like we did in Smalltalk, right? And move it to the web, which is a fully request response model, which doesn't have to do anything with stateful applications usually, right? And uh, I think there's this, there's this great book um, from, from, from Scott Welshin, right? Who, who does a lot in, in F-sharp, if I remember correctly. Who often says, and it makes fully sense if you read it, he says, actually, 
a request response web server is the best use case for functional programming language because all it does is gets a request and returns a response. That's that's functional by, by nature. And what we are doing is we we having a stateful Java enterprise beans and stuff like this because we took it from building Fed clients um, before the web was there and just took the same paradigms and shifted it into a total different application model, right? And I think. This is why we have so many problems with object-oriented programming or programs these days, and why they are modeled so 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 kind of strange, um, because they don't fit in many situations, at least from my perspective, the paradigm and, and the architectural style, um, which which is which is given by the application platform. Right? Uh, yeah, uh, totally totally agree there uh, on everything. It's a great book. I think it's called um, function. No, a domain modeling made functional, something like that. Yeah, exactly. and it's a it's a really good book. It's actually teaching uh, domain driven design, um, and it's the clearest book on domain driven design I've I've read. Um, but also with the mistake, uh, you know, the typical the typical web stack, the layered architecture is you have a web server. And then you have some like business logic underneath that. And then underneath that, you have the database. And the web server kind of goes through your business logic, and then that modifies the database. And the problem with it from a functional programming perspective is that your whole business logic is now, it's not, it's not pure because it has to access this uh, impure database. It's a you know changing thing. Um, and what the diagram that Christian was talking about is where I put the database on the side and say the web server can access the database and the domain model, and, and it has to coordinate the two. So the domain model can be pure, like a, you know no side effects, no mutation or anything. And then the database is on the outside. And you would query the database, like say get the, the user that's relevant to that request, pass it to the domain model, and make some kind of decision, like, okay, you know, cancel this user's account or something. And it would return that. And then the, the service would take some action, you know, maybe setting a field in a database or something. And that separation it lets you draw a line, you know, it's diagonal in the diagram that shows that like under this line it's all pure, it's all functional. And above this line, that's where all your services and your mutation happen. That that's like the sandwiches, right, Eric? So you're doing a sandwich. So you have something impure, and you have the, the pure and the nice the, the cheese or whatever, and yes. then you have some impure <laughs> stuff again. Right? right. Some people say it's um uh, it's a what is it immutable core and a uh an object oriented shell something like oh, that yeah, I've, I've heard that yeah uh the funny thing is that you arrive at the same architecture if you do test driven development without using test doubles because if i can't yeah. double the database i can't call it right so i'm calling it later and this is uh like uh gives me a similar, um, I can only call the database in the integration test then, but then it's on the highest level. So it's, um, so it's a, what's, what did you say? Imp no, it's a like imperative core? No. Imperative, core, imperative shell. 
Yeah. And functional, functional core, core or something like that. Yeah, I have heard that. I think that's also like the, the dominant thing in Haskell, right? Because in order to do any I.O., you need to pass it back to the system or kind of... That's right. Like... That's right. Yeah, so in, in just to, to expand on that a little, Haskell, uh, a Haskell program on its own does not have any side effects. It won't even send an email or, you know launch a launch a missile or or put anything on the screen by itself uh what it has is a data representation of that action um, that you are calculating with your code now it looks to you know as you as a programmer it looks like imperative code because of the syntax of the of the language but it's all in this type called io and you're building up this big action this complex thing that's going to get executed by the runtime. So the Haskell language has pushed all the burden of the you know, side effects to the runtime to execute. Uh, so that, that's how you know, uh, uh, the entire Haskell program that you write, even if you want to send an email or put something on the screen or write to a file, it has no side effects by itself. And in fact, if you, I mean, if you could figure out how to do it, you can actually test your program. Like, I, I want to test that this program will write to the file correctly, uh, even even without writing to the file. You can yeah, test that it has. You're the right. relying on the libraries, right? And and it's only the runtime that will mm. do that for you. Yeah. All so maybe the... to come come uh, conclude to the book, uh, is, uh -huh. if I understand you correctly, you are building the concepts in order to to teach them or like to explain them, right? Kind of use in JavaScript, you're building the infrastructure you need to do functional programming. That's right, and and, and then, it's it's uh -huh. yes, like are you building so instance, I/O also, like no, as, we're as not the, doing as the cherry on top, or at least no. a file reader or something. No, no. Um, you know that is one branch of functional programming. It it is a the this branch of totally pure functional programming. Mm -hmm. So that's just the Haskell branch. You know, there's even ML has side effects in the code, right? So it's it's this one branch of of you know approach to functional programming, and um, I don't think that that one branch should dominate you know, how people view functional programming. So there's the whole Lisp side of the, of, the, mm -hmm. um, of the tree. There's ML, which has side effects. And ML includes F sharp. Um, what else? Uh, Reason is a, is a new one. And so, yeah, I, I'm trying to look for the stuff that's kind of common, you know, across all of this. Uh, so yeah. what we we start though with something that is very common, uh, which is that functional programmers distinguish actions, calculations, and data. Um, if you you know if you, I I say it's like the defining distinction of functional programming, but I think a lot of people would disagree with that. But if you ask, is it important? Every functional programmer would say it's important to be able to distinguish pure code from impure code. Uh, 
Yeah, just you, you essentially you start also the book pretty much with it. Apart from this story with the manager, it's right off the gate the first thing that you bring to right. the reader. Right. I think it's I think it's vitally important. Um, you know, I, I've read a lot of books on functional programming to prepare for this, um, for writing this book, and I think that those books lose a lot of people because they talk about pure functions in a sentence or two and then you know kind of jump straight to what they think is the more interesting stuff which is i just consider like lambda calculus gymnastics it's just like oh look at this what i can do i can curry i can you know call this and do like mutual recursion and you know fun stuff it's fun not going to say it's not fun but i don't think that's the important practical stuff mm. um i think the important practical thing like if if you couldn't tell me that this code has a side effect like i you know I, all the gymnastics in the world aren't going to help you if you can't do that so i spend the first what nine chapters maybe less maybe seven chapters talking about how to work with this code once you make this realization that side effects are are maybe bad they're hard they're hard to work with you need them but they have all these problems and uh so how what do you do oh well you start extracting out calculations and you you um start uh building in layers of abstraction and you start using immutability and stuff and uh I, I think that that's that's really the approach I'm taking is like try to get the people who are interested in functional programming who like don't want to get to the lambda calculus yet. They just want to know like why is this even useful to me? And that distinction there is the is the useful thing. Mm, yeah, and, and I would say you, you have collected it in, into quite a comprehensive book. So if we made you, dear listener, now quite interested in, in this book, so it's uh, published by Manning. It's currently a time of recording in the early access program and it's, well, it says it's publication estimated April uh, 2021. Eric, is, is this going to hold or is it delayed? Oh, goodness. I, I am out of, I have no control over <laughs> when it gets published. Mm. Uh, it is done. Everything's mm. written and it is in like revising and copy editing and, you know, layout and stuff like that. So oh, so it's in it's already out of your hands. It's now all yeah. part of the publishing. I just get pinged every couple of weeks, like, oh, we need you to, you know, review this, and like, you know, I'm I'm doing that. It's moving along. It's new so book writing is, is still kind of waterfallish, right? If I understood this correctly now. <laughs> I mean, I I do wish that I could press a button and see <laughs> the book, um, but it is very much, you know, this old style of. I, do y'all remember back in the day, like uh, when they had like workflows, like human workflows, like, okay, you edit something in this software and then you import it into this next software and you export it to this format, then you import it. And so you, you like, the, you don't ever get to see the results of, of what you made because it's, you don't have that whole tool chain. That's no, what I, I don't remember this. Maybe because I never never did it or never worked in such an environment or maybe because I just was drinking so much to forget it, yeah? But yeah. I, I cannot remember it anymore, honestly speaking. Yeah? Well, <laughs> that so sounds terrible, yeah. yeah. Enough of books. 
<laughs> so, well, uh, thank you, thank you, Eric, for for an overview of your book. As for uh, next segment, for any local events. So, Eric, uh, in your area, what would be uh, interesting? I would say meetups or online meetups. Either way, that you can recommend. Goodness. Um, so before the lockdown, we had a really nice event that was weekly. It's called Hack Night. And it was just social, uh, but it was a very nice, tight-knit group of, of programmers and designers and, uh, and other technical, um, you know, software people. And it was, it was great. Like, we would go for hours just sitting in a hotel lobby. And then some of the weeks, would, there would be a talk. So, there, like, for instance, I had a a meetup that was functional programming talks. And so the first Tuesday of the month would be functional programming. And then there was one that was more front end and there was one that was more general. Um, so yeah, did you just I, skip I'll, it now due to COVID or did you try to move it to the, to the cloud or online? No, I, I didn't. I, I, we just canceled hack night. Um, and uh, sometimes I hear about one of the other groups still doing their presentations um, but I find that really boring. I want people. <laughs> I don't want to watch a screen for more hours of the day. So if you like it, yeah, you can you can find it. Uh, one of them is called Front End Party. The functional programming one, which isn't going on, is called No Fun. Um, <laughs> no Fun is great. I love it. <laughs> okay. So, like, so pretty much shut down then in, in, like in your area from community side, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's it's everywhere the same now, right? In the beginning, you had a kind of a peak where people said, "Yeah, cool, let's move everything to the web. Everybody can join everywhere." And then <laughs> the the number. Well, of maybe it's for the uh, for the talking uh, things because for the coding uh, events, like the coding dojo is still running. Yeah. I don't know of uh, of the date for the April one, but um, surely there will be one. Uh, mm -hmm. And we'll have a, a code retreat on on 15th of April. That's already okay. like fixed. That's during the week. So um, maybe it's easier if you, you pair, if you do pair programming uh, remotely, then it's still some kind of uh, meeting someone, doing something together. Yeah. So it's not the same as in person. I would say the code retreat is losing big on, on not being social. But it still has... a still works out right so we, um, but do you see an increase of people even or is it is it just stable um, I, uh, for the small ones that we uh, that we run like every two or three months I would say we are growing so it's uh, we used to be on site sometimes we are only four or six people it's really a small small group now uh, I think last time there was like 12 of uh, uh, Christian do you remember like it was Definitely more than 10, right? Yeah, yeah, we have 12 people, so quite the bump. And I said, uh, Peter, you have the higher charisma to motivate people to come to events that you uh, start. Cool. <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, but you never know, right? Maybe next time uh, it's only two people showing up. Uh, that's with the smaller community events. So 15th of April, code retreat um, for free during the week. I will put the link then in the in the notes, of course. But then, uh, like what's going on in JavaScript in Vienna, 
React community, David? Huh? Not, not too much in general. Well, in, in none of the communities. I mean, I don't know, the, know all of them, um, but I at least know that there's none of those meetups which we had back then, React, Angular, Futures, um, which is which is taking place on a regular basis anymore. Sometimes we have kind of a you know special meetup where, I don't know, a few people find together and say, hey, let's do something again. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you ever joined these meetups, and I was at the conference today, the online conference, uh, was great organized, um, French conference, um, basically now they moved it online um, due to COVID. And, and everybody is giving its best, but still, yeah, you miss you miss the social interaction. You miss, especially, I mean, if you, if you are more and more, or if you have already been at a couple of conferences in the beginning, you're very eager and, and taking as much topics and as much talks, and you try to sit everywhere in the first row. But if you if you're getting a little bit older, what you really enjoy is, is having lunch and, and discussing stuff with people and, and just you know getting a little bit yeah into a, to an area where you can get creative about new ideas, and that's that's totally missing. And I didn't see any format which which kind of um, came to this. Um, kind of same drive which you have in, in a real world um, um, kind of event. Yeah. But maybe I, I just didn't see it or maybe it's just not my thing because honestly speaking, if I if I talk to this, if I listen to talks, I always think to myself, because I'm a very impatient person, you know, right? And I always think, okay, I could watch this now or I'll watch it in YouTube then with, I don't know, 1.5 um, speed, right? And, and I save a lot of time by doing so. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe totally unfair to speak it, but honestly, it's 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 how I kind of David. See it. David, it's not about who watched the most talks when he dies. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not about that. I know, I know, I know. It's about but who I'm took the most stuff, notes but... when he dies. Like it's not about seeing; it's about like taking it in, right? No. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You're right, but you know, if 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 you've already seen so many talks as I've seen, then of course you 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 know it's kind of hard to really spot um, the the gold market, so to say. Which, which yeah, yeah, that's true. But, yeah, in general, I think that that the motivation goes a little bit down. It's, it's at least my my feeling in the in the COVID. Um, period now where in the beginning people were very motivated to try out these new formats. Um, we had we had come together on Miro boards and everything was great and cool and, and now everybody says hey come on let's 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 close this pandemic stuff and, and let's meet for a beer as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. I was I was gonna say I think there's another aspect to meeting like to traveling to, to a conference is the focus. You know, like I'm here for this conference, whereas if it's at your house and your kids are running around and, That's you know, they're, like I'm not going to stand here and watch four talks today. Um, I might sit through them at the conference, but, you know, someone is maybe catering and making mm -hmm. coffee and, you know, it's it's a totally different thing. That's true. So... Well, finally, Eric, um, do you have anything that you would like to advertise apart from your book? Um, so it's pretty much the one minute of free advertisement space that we can give you. Wow, thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if you want to learn closure, I'll advertise, uh, you know, I teach closure online. I, I record videos and uh, show people how to make stuff with closure. And you can go to purelyfunctional.tv to find the courses that I've got. 
Pearl wurde da schon auch sehr. And the, and the Lisp casts are more like community uh, based or what are you doing there? Uh, so that is like a branding mess up <laughs> between purelyfunctional.tv and Lispcast. So uh, I am in the process of consolidating all of this. So it's kind of moot, but Lispcast was supposed to be me, my brand, and purelyfunctional.tv, my idea was to have multiple people teaching stuff on there but i couldn't find anybody it didn't like i i guess no one wants to teach in video form and so or at least on my platform and so uh this division of like i'm Lispcast, and this is i'm on purely functional tv is just confusing to people so i'm i'm consolidating it all down to one but that hasn't happened yet it's a slow process all right so in, in in summary if you the listener want to uh, get eric's book so first of all it's published by manning it's called grokking simplicity uh, it will be released quite soon though you can get it in early access program already and if you also use our special promo code that you can read on our twitter messages for manning you can get some uh, discount on your first order And with that then, I say thank you to everyone. Thank you, Eric, for being with us. Thank you. This was great fun. And see and hear you uh, next time for a delicious cup of developer melange. See you guys. <laughs>